As all of you know, we are in a sermon series talking about people of promise. And uh, Pete, if you want to put up that first slide, um, we, uh, Pat showed this slide a few weeks ago. Uh, and it's over, overall, it is the story of, of, of creation of the Bible, right? All the way from paradise on the left-hand side to a restored paradise way over on the right-hand side. And he said that um, we, God works, um, you'll see over on, under Israel there, God works through these covenants, right? We've talked about the Abrahamic covenant, and uh, today we're going to spend a little bit of time with the uh, Davidic covenant. We've also talked about the Abrahamic covenant. And, um, and so, you know, what I wanted to do is just mention a couple things, right? The Abrahamic covenant was given 430 years before the Mosaic covenant, right? And it is unconditional, now, last week, Pat did a little, a little pop quiz for all of you, and I thought maybe we would do it again, because I don't know, from where I was sitting, the response was kind of weak. I, I admit that I had a hard time recalling some of the things as well. So before we dig into the Davidic covenant, what were, who can just call out the five uh, key promises in the Abrahamic covenant? What were they? Land, Land a seed, people, Blessing, right? God will be their God, and in Abraham's seed, all nations will be blessed, or the Messiah, the promise of the Messiah. So you can put the next one up there. There they are, the land, the seed, a blessing. In your seed, all the nations will be blessed, and God will be their God. So that's the Abrahamic covenant, and then we, we also learned a couple of weeks ago about the Mosaic covenant, and the Mosaic covenant, uh, it, it runs parallel right? And uh, what was, uh, you know, what was the principle that we learned about the Abrahamic covenant? And just call it out. What was it? Right? Obedience gets you blessings. Disobedience gets you cursed or punished or, or uh, chastised, right? And ultimately spread. But what was the purpose of God's chastisement? Do you remember that? Go ahead and put that slide up, because that's important, right? If you obey me, then I will bless you. If you disobey me, then I will curse you. But if you repent, then I will return you to blessing. That's God's intent, right? He's not trying to do these things out of cruelty. He's trying to do them to get them and, and us to repent and, and return to blessing. Now, of course, we know Pat said that that covenant ended at the cross, right? And then last week... Uh, Pat added something sort of layered on top of it, which, in which he talked about the actual nation of Israel. So I'm just going to give you a true or false, right? And I'm gonna, I'll ask you just to respond. So here's, here's the true or false question. The Lord is done with Israel, and there's nothing more he's going to do with them. True or false? False. False. Okay, very good. Exactly. Right? There, there will come a time right? If you want to think of it sort of the Lord has set aside Israel for the moment, but there are still people, we, um, a lot of people uh, would call them like Jews for Jesus, who are still coming to faith in Jesus Christ, but there will be a time where there will be a mass awakening within the nation of Israel. All right, and so with, with those principles in mind, right, we want to... Um, it gives us the framework to read the Old Testament, and you get to see all these undercurrents of all these things flowing around. And it's a beautiful thing because it helps us understand, right, when we read and what goes on. Now, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Pat also challenged you to read Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, and hopefully you've done that sometimes. So today we're going to talk about another one of the covenants, the one that was up there, the Davidic covenant. Now this one, um, uh, you will find in your Bible, if you want to turn there, to 2 Samuel chapter 7 in the Old Testament. If you have one of the Bibles found under the pew, it's on page 323. I don't want to give it away. Um, don't want you to have to squirm to find it, though, either. We're going to talk about the Davidic covenant, and obviously, um, you know, the reason it's called the Davidic covenant is because it was made with David. And um, Pete, if you could put up that Bible timeline slide for me. Now, this is uh, this this particular one. Uh, we'll wait for it here a second. Right, this is 
it's not mine, I'm not this artistic, right? But from left to right, it kind of gives a chronological timeline of the Bible. And I know it's a bit of an eye chart, right? But we start all the way in the left with Adam and Eve falling into sin to all the way over on the right with, you know, when Christ comes again, right? And there's that little arch over on the right-hand side that says, you know, we're here, we're in that day. We're almost at the end. So if you go to the next slide, I've taken the Old Testament portion and I've blown it up a little bit just to give you, because again, we're talking about how all these things fit into the Bible. So I just wanted to give you a little bit of a context, right? It's called the Davidic Covenant because it was made with King David. And you'll see he's David, it was right under Saul, a little bit to the right of the middle of the chart, right? So at the beginning, the Lord created the heavens and the earth, right? Adam and Eve fell into sin, Noah's Ark. Then there we go with Abraham, the Abrahamic Covenant. And uh, we know all about that, right? And then his sons, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, eventually, um, Israel is sent off the nation, well, the, the family of Joseph uh, goes into uh, Egypt, and there they have the 400 years of slavery, where the nation of Israel blossoms from a tribe into a flourishing nation. And then Moses call, is called by God at the burning bush to lead them out, and that's where we get the Mosaic covenant, right? A covenant that was made with Israel at Mount Sinai when they came out of Egypt, right? And then, of course, we know the people rebelled, and then we have the 40 years of wandering, and of course, this is not drawn to scale and certainly doesn't encompass every um, story in the Bible. But then we get sort of into this kingdom era where the people of God um, don't have a king, and they're looking around. They're now settled in the land of of the promised land, and they're looking around at all the other nations around them, and they say, wow, they have kings, and that looks like a pretty cool thing. So they ask for a king, and you end up with Saul, the first king, who didn't work out too well, and then we really get to sort of the pinnacle of this kingdom era in Israel's history. And David, I think, is really the spiritual pinnacle because he was called a man after God's own heart. But he became king, right? And just to give you some perspective, Right, um, you know, Saul, uh, Saul was anointed king in 1 Samuel 10, right? But then soon after, in about 1024 BC, uh, Samuel anoints David as king because that's God's choice. Now, it was almost, it was somewhere in the, in the 20 year range before David actually became the king of Israel. And if you remember, he was chased all over creation by Saul who was trying to kill him. So David uh, was blessed greatly by the Lord. In about 1003, he was appointed king over the whole country. He captures the Ark of Jerusalem from the Jebusites. I'm sorry, he captures Jerusalem, the city from the Jebusites. And a couple years later, he brings the Ark to Jerusalem. And so right now, we're about 1000 BC. And this is where the Davidic covenant sets in. And you'll see that, you know, after that, right, the kingdom bifurcates, and we have the northern kingdom with lots of bad kings. Eventually, they go into exile, a la the Mosaic Covenant, but unfortunately also does the southern kingdom. And then we have that long period, the 400 years of silence, and eventually, all of a sudden in Matthew, Jesus Christ explodes onto the scene. So that's where we are. We're in right now, we're with David, who is the spiritual man after God's own heart. Remember that it's interesting that while I would say David was the spiritual pinnacle of the kingdom of Israel, it wasn't until his son Solomon where you actually get to sort of the geographical and monetary peak of the kingdom where Israel was basically as close to what the Lord had promised to them and an intense amount of wealth. And that was under Solomon, and we're going to learn more about that today. So I, uh, hopefully by now you're in... Um, Hopefully by now you are at 2 Samuel 7, and I'm going to uh, read it uh, because I think it's very important to hear the whole thing, and then we'll go back and pull it apart. So hear the word of the Lord, and I would ask you, if you are able, uh, to just stand out of honor and respect for the Lord and his word. So if you are able and you desire to do so, I'd invite you to stand and hear the word of the Lord from 2 Samuel 7. Now it came about when the king, David, lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest on every side from his enemies. 
And the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in the house of cedar, but God, the ark of God, dwells in tent curtains. Nathan said to the king, Go do all that you have in mind to do, for the Lord is with you. But in that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and say to my servant David, Thus saith the Lord, Are you the one who would build me a house to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. Wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, go therefore... Thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus saith the Lord of hosts. And here's the Davidic covenant. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be a ruler over my people. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and cut off your enemies before you. And I will make your name great, like the names of great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may live in their own place, and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly, even from the days that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom." He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. And, we, and when he commits iniquities, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all the words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and I just pray that the words that I speak now will be your words, that you will get me out of the way, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be pleasing to you, Lord, that this message, you will move me out of the way and make it clear to everyone here, including myself, what is the Davidic covenant and how important it is to the story of the Bible that you have so generously given to us. Because indeed, it is part of the revelation that you gave to us of who you are, what your plan is, and what it's going to look like. So we give you all the thanks, the honor, and the praise, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, now, I want, a couple of, I want to cover a couple of quick sort of administrative details before we sort of pick this thing apart. Now, one, you will probably notice that nowhere in this, in, this, in this passage that I read did you hear the word covenant. It isn't in there, right? The Hebrew word is not included in here. The Hebrew word berith, right, is not in there. So you might say to yourself, well, we call this the Davidic covenant, but why isn't the word covenant in there? Well, the Lord, through his graciousness and wisdom, has given confirmation in other parts of Scripture that indeed this is a covenant. He may not have used this word, but certainly in other places he has confirmed it absolutely that this is a covenant. For example, you don't have to turn to it, but in Psalm 89 it says, For I have said, loving kindness will be built up forever in the heavens, and I will establish your faithfulness. Faithfulness. I have made a covenant, barith, with my chosen. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. So there he uses that word covenant in respect to what he had told David. And again, in 2 Chronicles, he says, as for you, I will, and this is where he's talking with Solomon, actually. The Lord is talking with Solomon, and he says, as for you, if you walk before me as your father David walked, even to do according to all I have commanded you, and will keep my statutes and my ordinances, then I will establish your royal throne as I have covenanted with your father David, saying, you shall not lack a man to be ruler in Israel. And what's interesting is in that particular passage, there's a different word that's used 
for the word covenant. And it's, I don't know if I'm saying it correctly, but in Hebrew, it's karath. And it's interesting that those two are used in different passages. And I find it particularly fascinating to find out that actually in the Abrahamic covenant, way back in Genesis, the Lord uses both of those words as he's talking about the covenant. And so here in the Abrahamic covenant, he used both of those words to talk about a covenant. And here also, he's used both of those words. It's interesting, the one karath actually means quite literally just cut. And, and we've talked a lot about that uh, you know, a few sermons back about the covenant. So it is a covenant. You don't have to worry about that. The Lord has confirmed it elsewhere in Scripture. And the other question you may have is, you know, is it, uh, is it unconditional or is it conditional? Because we've learned about that, the types of covenant. And I would definitely say that it's unconditional because depending on the version you read, at least eight or nine times, the Lord says, I will, I will, and doesn't put any restrictions on, on that. So let's dig into the Davidic covenant itself and uh, just look back with me at verse 1. Now it came about when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest on every side that the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now I live in a house of cedar but the ark remains, the ark of God remains in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go do all that you have in mind to do. Now isn't it interesting that Nathan, it doesn't say Nathan went and sought of the Lord. And um, I, I found that just kind of curious, so I did a little bit of digging on that. And in fact, he hadn't. But the Lord graciously, that night, before David could do anything, came to him and said, no, 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 I have a different plan. Right? You'll remember, too, that uh, Samuel, when he, ent- when he entered the house of, 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 of Dave, well, David's house uh, and uh, was looking for the next king, uh, he looked at David's brother, and he was like, whoa. Back in, in Sam, 1 Samuel 16, he said, Surely the Lord is anointed is before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, Don't look his, at his appearance and the height of his statue, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man. For a man looks outward, but the Lord looks at the heart. So we see here just the humanness of Nathan. He's like, man, you know, David, it's kind of like you are the, you are the, you know, everything you touch is golden. Surely if you want to build a house for the Lord, the Lord will bless you. And that, but that night, starting in verse four, it says, the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, go and tell my servant what the Lord says. Should you build a house for my dwelling? Because essentially I have not been in a house wherever I have gone with Israel to this point. He's not asked for one. He's not commanded anybody to go and do that. God, in in these verses, is very clearly simply just saying, I've not asked for a house of cedar. Now, you've got to know that a house of cedar was only for the most wealthy back then. And so David, the palace, was typically lined with lots of cedar. And uh, I think it's a wonderful expression of the fact that David was a man after God's own heart, that he himself looked and said, look at where I am, but look at where the ark of the Lord is and desired to build this house. Now, I want you to pay attention, though, to something, the word house. And again, I'm not sure I'm saying it correctly. I'm probably not. The Hebrew word is baeth, and it means a temple or palace. And we'll come back to that in a moment. Basically, he's saying he wants to build him a nice place. But then he says, now this is what you are to say to my servant David in verse 8. I took you, he said, this is, what, this is what you shall say to my servant David. This is what the Lord of armies says. I, took, I myself took you from the pasture, from following the sheep to be leader over my people Israel. And I have been where, with you wherever you have gone and have eliminated all your enemies from you. I will also make a great name for you, like the names of great men who are on the earth. So here we have the first promise that the Lord makes to David. And he says, I'm going to make your name great. And I don't think there's a whole lot more to say to that other than that's what he promised. And indeed, isn't it true that David's name is great? So that's promise number one. He goes on in verse 10. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may be in their own place and not be disturbed, nor the wicked afflict them any more as formerly 
even from the day I commanded judges to be over my people, and I will give you rest from your enemies. So now, here in, chapter, in verse 10 and 11, we have two more promises, two more I will things that the Lord says. I will appoint a place for my people, a land, right? That harkens back to the Abrahamic covenant, a land for my people, a place where they can settle, where they won't be harassed. And secondly, and I will give you rest from your enemies, right? God continues to operate right, in blessing to David, uh, somewhat in the, mo in the mosaic way, saying, you know, I, I, you are a man after my heart. I'm going to give you rest from your enemies. So now, in verse 11, right, we start to get to some interesting things. Verse 11, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. So here's the fourth promise, a house. Now, What's very interesting, and I love this about the Lord, and I love this about language, right? The word that is used again, he, so David says, Lord, I want to build you a house. And he's talking about a palace, a place for the ark of the Lord to go. And instead, the Lord turns it on its head, and he says, instead of that, I am going to build you a house, a baith. And it's interesting because that word can mean temple, it has been translated as palace, but it also stands for dynasty, right? We talk about things like the House of Windsor, right? The royal house uh, in England, right? So on the one hand, David is over here saying, hey, I want to build you a nice place to live, and the Lord returns with this amazing thing, this amazing promise, and says, I'm not going to just build you a house, a place, I am going to establish for you a dynasty. It's just fascinating wordplay. One commentator said, such wordplay highlights the close relationship that exists between David's progeny, his house, those who rule on the throne, and the temple of God, Yahweh, the true king. The house of God and the house of David rise and fall together. So, he's going to build him a house, and now he's going to go into a section where what we're going to see is we're going to see a lot of parallelisms, right? You're going to see a lot of things where it goes back and forth and back and forth, and you just have to kind of be careful to watch where you are. And so what I'm going to do is I'll, I'll give a little bit of help, right? And that is I've created a, a, a series of slides just to help us out. So you're going to see these parallels between Solomon and Jesus, because you remember, Solomon is David's offspring, and he's promising, he's going to make some very particular promises for his offspring. So let's just continue on in verse 12. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will, here's another one, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. Not too bad so far. He will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. All right, so now we start getting into the thick of this and some of the absolute beautiful things. He says, I'm going to raise up a descendant. That's pretty, that's pretty clear. We know that's going to be Solomon, and he will come forth with you, and I will establish his kingdom, right? So far, it doesn't seem necessarily to be particularly confusing. He shall build a house for my name, He's going to be the one that will build me a house, not you. And we learn elsewhere in Scripture, it's because David was a warring man. He, essentially, he had blood on his hands. That's why the Lord said, you're not going to build me my temple. But Solomon, your son, will. But then it says, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Whoa, wait a minute, what? Establish the throne of his kingdom forever? So we have this, we have this fifth promise that God makes. Uh, some kind of a kingdom, an eternal kingdom that will not end, right? And so, you know, the first set of parallelisms we see in this passage, Pete, if you go to the next slide, right, we see uh, Solomon, on the one hand, is the son of David, but later, right, the only person that fits the bill, as we'll see as we go through, is ultimately Jesus, the son of David, right, who is the ultimate son of David, 
who would be the one that would be able to fulfill what we see in verse 13 that talks about the foreverness. There's no way that one king or a series of, or, or one king could be forever. So we have this, the son of David the, and the ultimate son of David in Jesus Christ. And, and the second parallelism we see in here is that he is going to build a house for my name. Right, we know from history that Solomon, again, like I said before, during Solomon's reign, Israel reached its pinnacle in terms of geographic expansiveness, monetary impact on the world, right? Solomon built the united monarchy of Israel, and he was the one that ultimately built the temple of the Lord. And what a temple it was, right? Um, just when you go read the, the descriptions of it, it's an amazing thing. But we also know that Jesus is going to build a temple. And in fact, he's already building his temple today, right? Um, let me draw a quick parallel here. In 2 Chronicles 7, when Solomon dedicate, was dedicating the temple, he finished and prayed and fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the house. The priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house, right? The temple is where the Lord resides. That's where he is. And in fact, it was such an amazing experience. They had to even leave because the, the spirit of the Lord so fully filled the temple. And yet we know that Jesus is also building a temple. 1 Peter 2, verses 4 to 5a says, Come to Jesus, for he is, the living, he is the living stone people have rejected, but which God has chosen and honored. And now you, you are we, believers, are living stones being used to build a spiritual house. You are also a group of royal priests with the help of Jesus Christ who will offer sacrifices that please God. Why are we living stones? 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? We have the Spirit of God. Just similar, in similar way to the Spirit of God dwelling the temple, the Holy Spirit lives inside of us and we are being built into the true temple, the temple of Jesus Christ. Right? Amen. And we know, if you go on to the next one, Right, we know that, that the kingdom of Israel on earth eventually fell in 586, right, was exiled off, right? But we also know that the kingdom, and we're, I'm going back to that word that was right at the end of that paragraph or that, sent, uh, that reading, which talked about forever, right? Jesus is going to establish a kingdom that will have no end. What a glorious and amazing thing. And we go on in verse 14. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. Depending on what theologian, this is the sixth promise, a royal adoption. But we clearly see that God is saying, I will be a father to him, he will be a son to me. But when he commits iniquity, I will chasten him. Right? And we know if you remember your Bible history, that Solomon started off very well, asked for um, wisdom, followed the Lord, but as his time went, right, he strayed farther and farther. We know that the, well, what was it, hundreds of wives, hundreds of wives, can you imagine that? Um, you know, pulled him away from the true worship of the Lord and drew his attention away. And in the end, the peace that God had given Israel at the beginning was disrupted and he started having problems not only inside his house, but outside of his house. And so if we go to the, the last piece of the slide, we know that Solomon, he was chastened for his sin, but it's interesting that it says right in here, and the strokes of the sons of men. We know that Christ he was chastened, not because he committed iniquity in any way, shape, or form, but he was chastened for our sins. So you've got all these parallels in here. 15 says, but my loving kindness. How many of you are in a small group here at church that are going through the materials that, you're, um, you know, that have been prepared, right? That first study was all about what, what was the word that was used? Hesed, right? Hesed. And here it is in verse 15. But my loving kindness 
shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul. Right? I'll, uh, I added a bonus one on here that isn't necessarily in here, right? But we do know that um, he said he will, his hesed shall not depart, right? Solomon did rule in a time of great peace. There's no doubt about that, right? But eventually, like I said, that peace ended and war came and then there was his son Rehoboam and Jeroboam, the kingdom splits and it just goes bad from there. But we know that Jesus is going to be he is going to be the king over a kingdom of peace that will last forever, forever and ever. Amen. So, ultimately, the Davidic covenant, I'm going to put up a, well, let's put up a slide that sort of summarizes the whole thing of the Davidic covenant, all the points of the Davidic covenant. Right? One, and actually, it's interesting. Oh, I see. It's, it is up there. It just isn't highlighted. So the first thing about the first principle or first point about the Davidic covenant, it is a house, a lineage of kings. The Messiah would ultimately come from the house of David, a shoot from the stump of his father, Jesse. So you have this house, and again, that beautiful interplay of that word house, where I'm just going to build you a physical house, but no, I will build you a dynasty. And then you have the kingdom, referring to the people, obviously, that are ruled by the king, right? At that particular time, it was Solomon being ruled. But ultimately, when it's Jesus Christ, it's going to be his kingdom. And we talk about the fact that for believers today, we have been given the Holy Spirit as, as a deposit, right? So there is a sense in which the kingdom of heaven is here today. The king rules in our hearts. But there's also a sense in which it's not yet here. He doesn't reign physically with us in this particular location. That is, something, that is something that is coming. He's going to be coming again, hallelujah, and he's going to establish his kingdom on earth, and he will be with us. And that will be a glorious thing. And the throne, the throne that it talks about in there, the throne represents the authority of the king's rule, right? Because you can have a king... Right, but nobody recognizes his authority. Right, you see that in a lot of the, after the split of the kingdom, one king will come and then somebody will kill him a few days later because they don't recognize his authority to be king. But Jesus will be on the king forever, uh, the throne, and then the forever, oh, hey, wow, oh, my goodness, look at that. Pete's amazing. Emphasized it right there. Emphasizing the eternality of the promise to David and the true Israel. This is all about forever not just a king over a kingdom for a few years or a few centuries, but this is going to extend on and on and on through all eternity. And so if you're going to boil it down into one simple phrase, right, sort of a sticky statement, I would say the Davidic covenant is all about a forever king over a forever kingdom. A forever king Jesus over a forever kingdom, the kingdom of true believers, right? Um, those who have accepted the Lord Jesus Christ by faith as their means of salvation, that's the kingdom, and he will reign and rule over that kingdom forever. So you may say, I understand a lot of parallelisms. We're talking about a house, a kingdom, a throne, a forever king, a forever kingdom, so what? Well, like we've talked about with the other, other covenants, I think it's absolutely essential to understand the Davidic covenant and see it because, in, as I'll show you in a moment, like the Abrahamic covenant or the principle of the Mosaic covenant that you see working around in the various passages of the Bible, once you understand this, you're going to see this stuff start to pop up everywhere, right? I, how, how many of you have seen the Mackinac Bridge or the Golden Gate Bridge? These amazing structures, these suspension bridges, right, anchored on one end of, of wherever they're covering to the other end. And, and just like Pat said, the Abrahamic covenant is this foundational covenant. I think this is kind of like the, this covenant, I would call it like a spire covenant. It holds up all the, this, this sort of golden thread, this promise that weaves itself all throughout the Bible. 
anchored one end in Genesis and anchored at the other end in Revelation. And, you're gonna, and when you start to read the Bible and you think about the fact that God made a forever king promise over a forever kingdom, you're going to start to see this thing pop up all over the place. Right? It starts in Genesis 3.15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He will bruise your head, and you will bruise him on the heel. It starts there. Now, it's not particularly mentioned in there, but certainly when you get to Genesis 49, and Jacob is giving his blessing to Judah, he says, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he, to whom it belongs, shall come, and the obedience of the nation shall be his." right? There it is. He's, it's starting to talk about this scepter. These are royal terms, right? Kings hold scepters. And so you see this theme starting to develop or, or, or just sort of popping up in here. Jeremiah, when he's speaking woe to the shepherds who are scattering the people, right? He said to them, behold, in Jeremiah 23, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land, right? So you see this, and it says, in his day, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. Um, and, this, and, this will, and this is his name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness, right? You start to see these things already in there, the kingdom, the foreverness, the throne, the people, right? The house of Judah. What, go, to, go to Luke 1. Take a look at what, what, did the, what did the angel say to Mary? The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall give him the name of Jesus. He will be called great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Israel, or Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Right? There it is, right there. All four principles of the Davidic covenant. You've got the house, you've got David as mentioned, you've got the kingdom, the house of Jacob, you've got the throne, the throne of his father, and you've got the foreverness. It's right there. We can see it. Do you remember what the, the wise men, when we were in our Christmas series, the wise men came, right? What were the wise men? They were kingmakers. God had to bring in foreign people to identify Christ as the king, right? And what did they bring? They brought gifts, what? Fit for a king, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, right? Later in, later in, in Matthew 10, we see this gentleman by the name of Blind Bartimaeus. He was a beggar, and he was sitting alongside of the road, and when he heard that Jesus from Nazareth was passing by, he shouted, Jesus, son of David, have pity on me. And the people said, oh, stop, be quiet. But he called out even louder, son of David, have pity on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him over, right? Son of David, right? You know, it, it's interesting that some, some critics will say, well, Christ never really affirmed his deity. Well, I think right there, or, you know, I think right there he basically did because he answered, he answered the son of David call. He didn't say, no, 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 that's not really my name, but I think you're looking for me. He walked over and said, call him over, right? He called him son of David, hearkening right back to the Davidic covenant. Jesus before Pilate, what did he say? My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest. And Pilate says, well, then you are a king. Yes, you are a king. And, and what about, don't forget about John 19, Right? Pilate had prepared and fastened a note to the cross. What did that plaque on the cross say? Right, King of the Jews. Right, this all harkens right back to, to that. And, and I don't know about you, you know, I just bought tickets the other day. Um, I have a nephew that goes to Kelvin in Grand Rapids, and he's going to be singing in the Messiah. And I love going and hearing the Messiah. It's an amazing piece of work. And if you ever have a chance, go hear it. But there is one chorus in there that uh, Handel wrote. It's, it's simply entitled, Alleluia. How many of you have heard it? 
It's an amazing piece of work. And just over and over and over again, it just says, like we sang this morning, right? Alleluia, alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our God and of our Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. King of kings and Lord of lords forever and ever, forever and ever. Right, right from Revelation 19, 11, chapter, uh, several verses out of 19 and 11 and other passages. I mean, do you see how it goes from one end to the other, that we will, we will eventually be under this king over a forever kingdom. Amen and amen. Now, so, I would ask with you to turn to me, uh, with me, to back to chapter 7 of 2 Samuel. Because as we talk about, you know, uh, yes, there is this incredible importance that we see this thread moving through it, and we recognize that as we study the word. But I want to point your attention for some additional application to David's prayer. This is really an amazing prayer, and I know that, we're, I know that I've probably got you a little bit behind, but I'm going to read this prayer anyway. And I really would invite you this week, kind of like Pat did with the other passages, I really would invite you to take some time this week and spend some time in this prayer. Because honestly, the first couple of times I read through it, I, I, I had to marinate it in it for a while. But after all these amazing promises, it says in verse 18, then David the king went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was insignificant in your eyes, O Lord, for you have spoken also of the house of your servant concerning the distant future, and this is the custom of man, O Lord. Again, what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O God, for the sake of your word and according to your heart, you have done all this greatness to let your servant know. For this reason, you are great, O Lord God. There is none like you, and there is, are no, and there is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And what one nation on earth is like your people Israel, whom God went to redeem for himself as a people and to make a name for himself, and to do great things for you and awesome things for your land before your people, whom you have redeemed for yourself from Egypt, from nations and their gods. For you have established for yourself your people Israel as your own people forever, and you, O Lord, have become their God. Now, therefore, O Lord God, the word you have spoken concerning your servant and his house, confirm it forever. And do as you have spoken, that your name may be magnified forever by saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and may the house of your servant David be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the Lord God of Israel, have made a revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Now, O Lord God, you are God, and your word is truth, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless, your, bless the house of your servant that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing, may the house of your servant be blessed forever. The application here, I think, if you read, can come right from David's prayer. And so, like I said, I am going to admonish you, all right? And, and, and remember, admonish has... Has, has somewhat of a bad connotation in our world. But in this particular case, it's just an, I advise or urge you strongly to do something. Verse 22 reads, For this reason you are great, O Lord, for there is none like you, and there is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. David is sitting before the Lord, and he is absolutely exploding in praise to the Lord God. And I think it's for two reasons. Why is he doing this? And in verse uh, 18, at the beginning of the prayer, he says, Then David the king went and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O God, and what is my house that you have brought me yet this far? Right? David sat down for a moment, and he thought about 
the past. Everything that God had done in the past for him, right? I mean, just a few years before he was a shepherd, he was essentially nobody. And now the Lord had elevated him to the position of king, right? Amazing things. And I think whether you're young or old, if you stop to think a little bit about what the Lord has done in your life, yes, it absolutely leads you to praising the Lord God for all that he has done, right? I know I'm a leaky vessel. If I don't think about those things once in a while, I forget. And I'm kind of like, Lord, what have you done for me today, right? Let's get out the lamp and let's rub it and see what you've got in store for today. But the Lord has done so much. And, and then he says this, and yet this was insignificant in your eyes, O Lord, for you have spoken also of the house of your servant concerning the distant future. Then David turns his attention and says, and it, that was like almost trivial compared to what you're going to do in the future. This is amazing. You're going to establish this forever king over this forever kingdom, and I am a critical part of that. He's looking forward to all that God has promised us. Matthew Henry said, what can we say more for ourselves and our prayers than God has already said for us in his promises? Do you understand the promises of God that he has made to you? to you, to each one of us individually. When's the last time you went and spent time just looking at what the Lord is going to do for us, the promises he's made? Yes, he already loves us, right? But just think about what we've already learned in the covenants that applies to us, right? We are loved by God. We are going to be part of this eternal kingdom that will have this eternal king. That's a promise to us as well. We're going to be part of that kingdom. We're not, we're not the ones where the king is going to come from, but we're included in that. That's an amazing thing. And when he talks about all those promises of protecting the land, right, we're going to be in a recreated heaven and a recreated earth. We're going to live in peace. These are amazing promises. Have you thought about all the promises that God has made to you that are yet to come? Because I know, yeah, sometimes here on earth, I get beat up a little bit, and uh, sometimes when I'm tired, the first thing to go is, is true quiet time with the Lord. But I would encourage you, as David did, sit before the Lord. Sit before the Lord. And verse 27 says, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer for you. I think you will find great courage when you sit down and review what the Lord has done for you and what the Lord has, is going to do in the future, right? What, we were driving home, my wife and I, we were driving home the other day from Kentucky, and I just said, you know, I know the word says I have every spiritual blessing. I don't really know. I mean, that's an amazing short little statement that we as Christians kind of sometimes say, I'm blessed with every spiritual blessing. What is that? Have you really stopped to think about that and unpack that? That's amazing. But I also want to, I, I want to talk to those of you who maybe you're here today because someone has invited you. Right? I want to talk particularly to those of you who are online because maybe you stumbled across this message, like I said earlier, just doing a Google search. Or maybe you're going to see this later this week, or in a month, or in a year, or who knows, whatever YouTube will morph to in a couple of years, right? Ah, I, God works with intentionality. And there's a reason that this message is here for you today. There's a reason why this is here. There's a reason why he has you listening to this message today. Right? We do not get into the, into the forever kingdom of our own merit. Right, the forever kingdom, in order to get into that kingdom, the entry requirement is perfection. And you think about it, it's easy to say, well, I'm better than so-and-so, and I'm better than so-and-so, and, and in fact, that may very well be true, but when we compare ourselves to the perfect standard of God, all of us fall short. And yet we have this amazing truth that was talked about today. We have a forever king who came to earth as a baby, we celebrate that at Christmas, who lived a perfect life, who died on a cross on a day we call Good Friday, but was raised again on a glorious day we call Easter. He did that to pay for your sins and to give you new life. 
The way that you take advantage of that is through something we call faith. It's just acknowledging the fact that you cannot get into this eternal kingdom yourself by your own merit, but that Jesus Christ has already done all the work that's required and you simply need to transfer your trust from anything you have done to the already accomplished work that he has done. And that can be done very simply by acknowledging that you are a sinner, believing that Jesus, not only, not just believing the facts about him, but believing that he is who he says he is, is who he says he is, and did what he said he did, and taking that to heart, believing that, transferring your trust off yourself and onto that completed work. We're going to have people up here in a moment. The worship team is going to come out, and we're going to close this service with a, a, a beautiful number that already is bringing the hair on the back of my head up a little bit because it's wonderful to sing. But we're going to have people out here afterward that would love to talk with you. If you have any questions about what does this mean, how do I participate in a forever kingdom with a forever king, they would love to talk to you. Come find me, right? Pastor Gary is over there. We've got people in the balcony I know that love the Lord. There's plenty of people here that would love to talk to you about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for this covenant that you have put into place a forever king over a forever kingdom. And we look forward to the day, Lord, when there will be fulfillment of that, where we will be together uh, with Jesus Christ in glory. We know, Lord, that uh, by the fact that he lives in our hearts today as believers, we're already participating and getting the amazing new life that Christ offers. So, Lord, as we study this word, will you just show us Show us these, the truths of these covenants as they move around and show up in these different places. May we just be amazed at you and how you weave these threads throughout all of history. May we never lose sight of the fact of how magnificent you are. And may we always, as we stop to think about how you've taken care of us in the past, how you've been with us through our trials, how you will take care of us in the future, May we always raise our voice in a glorious alleluia to you. We thank you and praise you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.